to the Weekly Appellate Report for March 17, 2017. Your host, Brian Cardile. Happy to welcome you to another edition of our program. It's your source each Friday for commentary and insight from California practitioners, jurists, and academics on salient developments in appellate law. Our show this week examines two recent federal court rulings, one from the Ninth Circuit and another out of the U.S. Supreme Court. Both add new contours to long-existing doctrines, one in the context of water rights, and the other relating to the impeachability of criminal jury verdicts. I'll chat first with Josh Potashnik, an associate with Munger Tolls and Olson, about the case of Agua Caliente Band of Cohila Indians, first the Coachella Valley Water District et al., filed last week out of the Ninth Circuit. There, the panel refined a century-old water rights doctrine to account for today's ever-increasing water scarcity in the American West. The unanimous panel determined that the reserved rights doctrine, created by the 1908 case Winters versus the United States, applies to rights in groundwater. The Winters rule prescribes that when the federal government withdraws land from the public domain, say, for a national park or an Indian reservation, it impliedly reserves water rights necessary to serve the land's intended purpose. Before the last week's ruling, though, courts had only specifically acceded to the notion that this Winters rule applied to surface waters like lakes and rivers. But as surface water dwindles on many of these reserved tracks, like the one populated by the Agua Caliente Band, the question of whether Winters rights apply to underground aquifers has grown increasingly vital. Mr. Potashnik will describe how the court answered that question in the affirmative, and he'll preview the many difficult questions that now lie ahead as courts try to figure out the contours of these groundwater rights. Then, Jeffrey Aaron, directing attorney with the Riverside Office of the Federal Public Defender, will discuss the U.S. Supreme Court's recent ruling in Peña Rodriguez v. Colorado filed last week. There, for the first time since its creation in 1975, a federal rule of evidence got a new exception carved into it, or out of it. The no-impeachment rule prescribes that jury verdicts may not be assailed with testimonial evidence after they've been rendered. The rule means to protect verdicts' finality and encourages open discourse during deliberations. In Peña Rodriguez's case here, one juror contended during deliberations that a number of virulent racial prejudices provided trustworthy bases on which to find the defendant guilty. Indeed, he was found guilty when, after learning of those statements from two other jurors, the defense counsel moved for a new trial based on the racist jurors' contentions. The court denied the motion based on the no impeachment rule. But in a 5-3 ruling, Justice Kennedy reasoned that to maintain public faith in the judicial process, verdicts appreciably influenced by racial animus must be subject to impeachment. Dissenting, Justice Alito saw no reason why verdicts based on racial bias should get any more scrutiny than verdicts based on other improper biases. Mr. Aaron will walk us through... Justice Kennedy's reasoning, and also explain why Justice Alito's opinion, of course contrary to his intent, actually might presage exceptions that could be carved out of the no impeachment rule in the future, like exceptions for verdicts based on biases against gender, religion, or sexual orientation. Before we get to my guest, though, let me first remind you, as always, that CLE credit is available for listeners of the podcast. You can find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Without any further ado, then, let's hear from my first guest, Mr. Josh Potashnik. Very pleased to be joined now by Mr. Josh Potashnik, Associate Attorney with Munger, Tolls & Olson in their San Francisco office, where he works primarily on complex civil litigation and appellate litigation. Certainly good to have him here today, because in my experience, at least, trying to interpret appellate decisions dealing with property rights and water can be a complex task. Mr. Potashnik, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Brian. Great to be with you. Okay, so you contributed a column to our newspaper on the case we'll speak about out of the Ninth Circuit filed last week, the Agua Caliente Band of Coahuila Indians first the Coachella Valley Water District and a bundle of other water districts and agencies um, in which the, the U.S. also intervened. This case essentially deals with uh, water rights and whether or not this band of Indians, this tribe, has reserved a right to the, the groundwater that flows underneath its reservation. You say in your column that this is a long-awaited and significant ruling, and it sounds like a fairly fundamental question whether this group has a right to the water below its land. Um but you say it's also a matter of first impression. Why, uh, it's a very important question, has it not been reckoned with by a federal court to this point? So that, that is a good question, Brian, and I, I think there are a couple answers to it. Um, number one, the, the question in this case pertains specifically to groundwater as opposed to surface water. So there's a body of case law dating back um, more than a century, actually, all the way back to 1908, dealing with reserved rights in surface water. And just, just to make this clear at the outset. The the doctrine of reserved rights says essentially that um, when the federal government takes land out of the public domain 
and establishes it for some purpose. So, for instance, a national park or an Indian reservation or something like that. It also impliedly reserves a specific uh, a quantity of water necessary to allow that federal reservation to achieve its purpose. So um, water law, as, as many of your listeners probably know, is generally state property law. And so absent the reserved rights doctrine, it's not necessarily clear that these federal reservations would have would have a water right, but the reserved rights doctrine serves to ensure that they do. And as I said, it, um, all of the case law up till this point had dealt with reserved rights in surface water rather than groundwater. And so I think it's a good question, why hadn't this groundwater issue come up yet? Um, th- the best answer probably is that, you know, for, for most of the um, history of the West, um, there hadn't been acute water shortages. You know, you'd, you'd have seasonal water water shortages, certainly, and, um, you know, in, in specific areas, you would have water shortages. But, but on the whole, there was, there was enough water to go around for, for um, the users in, in the various areas throughout the West. Um, but as the population of the West has increased and economic activity has increased, um, and uh, now we're entering a period of time where climate change looks like it might um, reduce the amount of water in the West, um, you're seeing more and more conflicts, not just localized conflicts in specific um, river basins, but but conflicts throughout the West over water, and and you're seeing more and more users turn to groundwater as a as an alternative source of supply to surface water. Sure. So you saw this a lot um, over over the past five years in California, particularly with the drought, and in certain areas of the state, um, like the San Joaquin Valley and the Central Coast and other areas groundwater accounted actually for for a, a majority of the water that um, that they were using during that time during that drought and so I think as going forward as we enter an era of an increasing water shortages and and increased reliance on groundwater um, it, the, the question of, of whether these water rights and groundwater existed um, became of increasing importance um, and I suspect that's what motivated the tribe to file suit in, in this case that uh, that really that you cite from about a century old case, Winters versus the United States, setting the the reserved rights doctrine up. Um, that operates, as I understand, sort of in uh, within different states constructs of property law. In the Western states, as you write in your column, many apply the the prior appropriation doctrine of, of property rights in water, as opposed to various other kinds that, that could be used. How exactly does that federal reserved right rule the doctrine? Work within in the context of of states' prior appropriation constructs, and and why, as you say in your column, is our rights gleaned from that winter's decision and rights under the reserve rights doctrine? Why are they so important, specifically in states that use the prior appropriation doctrine? Sure. So, so to step back, um, your listeners may recall that there are generally two types of uh, systems of water law in the United States. Um, there's something called prior appropriation, which exists primarily in Western states where water is more scarce. And under that system, um, you have a, if, if you're a water user, you have a right to a certain quantity of water that you obtain by putting it to beneficial use. And um, your right uh, has a what's called a priority date, uh, which is the, the year in which you first started putting that water to beneficial use. And older rights are superior to uh, more recent right, so that it's often described as first in time, first in right. So if there is a shortage, um, more recent users get their water curtailed um, before more senior users get their water curtailed. The other main system we have is, is called riparianism or riparian rights, um, and that is more common in the eastern part of the country where water is more plentiful. And the water rights there aren't as clear or well-defined that the law is essentially if you own property that um, abuts a a river or stream, you have a right to use the water in a reasonable fashion, um, given your needs and the needs of other um, users on on the river. Um, So, and and that's the system, that's the common law rule that, that prevailed in England and we brought over from England and it worked pretty well in regions where water is relatively plentiful because you, you just didn't have that many disputes over water. But as the West was settled um, and, and water wasn't as common, it was much more important to quantify who had a right to use what, um, uh, what quantity of water um, and to have more well-defined property rights and also to have, have water rights that didn't 
um, rely on you having property that actually abutted a, a river or stream. So the one difference between the two systems is um, in, in the prior appropriation scheme, if you have water, if you have property that, that doesn't um, abut a stream, but you're able to divert water from a stream and put it to use on your land, you have a property right in that water just, just like a, a riparian user would. Um, the, the way the reserved rights doctrine operates in practice is it sets a priority date of the date on which Congress um, reserved the land at issue for, for the whatever purpose Congress has designated it for. So if it's a national park, the date at which Congress withdrew the land from the public domain and established the park. If it's an Indian reservation, the date on which the Indian reservation was established. And as I said, the more senior a water right is, the generally the stronger it is and the more valuable it is because you're less likely to be curtailed in, in time of shortage. And many of the reserved rights um, date back quite some time to the late 19th century or early 20th century. So the, the Indian reservation at issue um, in, in this case, um, the Agua Caliente Band Reservation was created, I think, in the 1870s. Um, so, so that's a very old water right and, and senior water right, and, and so it's quite valuable um, because it's, it's uh, superior to, to, to later uh, water rights that, that, that subsequent users would get. Okay, well then with that all laid out, and we've identified some of the, the parties involved here and, and the underlying facts, let's make sure we have them also, that we have a, an area of land that Indian reservation set aside in, in the 19th century, and the, the Band of Indians is, is filing suit. What's the, exactly the, the nature of their claim, and what are they what are they seeking? Sure, so it's a claim um, that they filed in, in federal court uh, in the, the Central District of California. Um, uh, the reservation is located in... in the Coachella Valley region of Riverside County, which is the area around Palm Springs and Palm Desert um, in, in that region. And, and they filed suit seeking declaratory and injunctive relief um, to the effect that they had a reserved right in the groundwater in the aquifer underlying their land and, um, and seeking an injunction preventing um, the defendants, who are two water districts and various officers of the water districts, from pumping groundwater in a manner that would interfere with their um, with their reserved rights in that groundwater. Um, so that's that's the basic claim. The the United States intervened as a plaintiff on behalf of the in, the Indian tribe, which is common in these cases. Um, the the federal government will get involved to protect the interests of the the federal reservation at stake. Um, so, so the case was filed in, in federal district court, um, and the case was actually trifurcated into three separate phases, which, um, which we can discuss if, if we have time. Um, and, and it was the first phase that's at issue here, and the question there is, um, it's a purely legal question, does the tribe have a reserved right in the groundwater underlying its reservation to begin with? Okay, because I assume if, if the answer to that question was no, then the second and third parts of that trifurcation wouldn't be worth uh, worth going through. That's right. So you know, it's a and you you see this in in the law in a variety of different settings. That if if you have a question that's more of a legal question that's that's antecedent to um, other factual questions that are going to take a whole bunch of discovery and and work to to settle, and you you might as well resolve that threshold question first before investing all the time and energy that you need to, to settle those other issues. Okay. Then I understand the parties cross-moved for summary judgment. What, what was the, the trial court's decision as to this legal question? Sure. So um, on, on the legal question, the, the trial court sided with the Indian tribe and held that, um, that the reserved rights doctrine does extend to groundwater. And it was a uh, fairly thorough opinion from the trial court. The, the judge clearly um, gave it quite a bit of thought um, and uh, reached a reached an outcome that that was favorable to the tribe. And now the Ninth Circuit last week affirmed that ruling, and it did so um, by a few different modes of reasoning. We'll, we'll unpack all of them here. Let's start with its treatment of Supreme Court precedent, including the Winters case, but also cases that have happened since then that have interpreted and tried to figure out exactly the purpose and scope of the Winters decision. Um, and based on all this, I understand that the panel surmises sort of two main elements of that Winters rule. And what exactly were those two elements of the rule? Sure. So 
um, the the two main contours of the of the winter doctrine that that the Ninth Circuit um, relied on here were first that when the when Congress sets aside um, land from the public domain for a reservation, it reserves a quantity of water necessary to achieve the purposes of the reservation at issue. So um, this this principle wasn't actually set forth so much in the Winters case as it was in a later case called United States v. New Mexico um, from, from 1978, um, where the issue was, um, so there was a, a national forest in New Mexico, and the question was whether in setting aside that land for a national forest, um, Congress intended to reserve um, a certain quantity of water for purposes of uh, recreation and uh, wildlife preservation and, and, and that sort of thing. And Congress, uh, the Supreme Court in that case held that no, in, in establishing the National Forest, um, you know, Congress was motivated by, um, you know, timber and, and, um, you know, agricultural interests and, and more traditional, um, you know, economic motives for, for creating the forest than, than recreation and wildlife and the, um, these uses that, you know, were, were more recent. And so, the court held that the the water right um, that Congress reserved didn't uh, extend to those new uses. So that that's the the first rule that um, Congress reserves a quantity of water necessary to achieve the purposes of the reservation. The second part of the doctrine um, is that the water right extends to water that's quote unquote appurtenant to the reservation at issue. So appurtenant is a term of art in water law and and um, water rights generally attached to a specific uh, piece of property. So, you know, if you own property in a certain area and you have a water right there and you move to a different area, you don't get to take your water right with you necessarily. The the, the water right entitles you to use water on a specific piece of land. And so um, for, for there to be a water right on a federal reservation, the the water has to actually be physically attached to, to that property. So you don't get to just go take water from, from somewhere else for that purpose. So um, so those are the two main contours of the doctrine that the Ninth Circuit relied on. Okay. Then with those set up, then those enunciated, let's walk through them. What what did the panel hold with regard to that first element pertaining to the uh, the water that's needed to, to fulfill a primary purpose of a reservation? Sure. So um, the, the first thing the court said was, look, you know, the, this question of what the purpose of the Indian reservation is, and um, and is there a, a reserved right for a particular purpose? That's not really directly relevant to the question of whether um, reserved rights extend to groundwater. You know, they're they're logically distinct questions. Do you have a potential reserved right in groundwater, and then um, what are the purposes that you can use that water for? So the the first thing the Ninth Circuit did was distinguish between the two, um, and and said, you know, look, first, there's no reason to think that reserved rights can't extend to groundwater. Um, and, and then the, 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 the court went on to say, okay, well, what, what is the purpose of this Indian reservation? And, and um, you know, in, in, in that specific context, is there a reserved right in, in groundwater? Um, and the, the Ninth Circuit can, concluded that there was, that um, in establishing the reservation, Congress set it aside for the same general purposes that it sets aside any Indian reservation for, you know, for for Native Americans to live there and to farm and to conduct their uh, ordinary lives there, and you know, it's the same purpose that 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 water rights are used for on on any number of different properties, and and there's no reason that um, groundwater can't be used to satisfy those purposes. Okay, then getting into the second part of the rule. I- I understand that's sort of the the new ground that's broken here. Whether groundwater is defined as a pertinent within this rule. So, how does the the panel reach its decision on this point? Sure. So, um, as you say, the the panel goes on to this question of a pertinence, and um, you know, I, I, this wasn't this wasn't the wa- one of the water district's main ar- arguments. I, I don't think it, you know it's it's pretty clear this water was is. is in an aquifer that's that's physically underlying the um, the tribal land, and the way groundwater law generally works and works in California is you have a right to use water that is physically underneath your land. And the Ninth Circuit said there's no reason that groundwater can't be a pertinent 
to property in, in the same way that, that surface water is. It's physically attached to that property. It's, it's underneath the property. Um, and, and the court also relied on a uh, Supreme Court case called Capert, um, and where there was some language in the case um, saying that in, um, in creating a reserved right, the, the federal government um, can prevent diversions of water that would interfere with its water right, and, and in particular, it can prevent diversions of groundwater that would interfere with the, the uh, reserved rights. And, and so the court said, look, if you can prevent diversions of groundwater to protect your surface water rights, there's no reason you, you shouldn't generally be able to uh, prevent diversions of groundwater to, to protect your, your groundwater rights also. Okay. Now, also in dealing with this question, there's there's some language that discusses the the dire circumstance that the tribe finds itself in, and as do many other communities that live upon land in, in the west and the southwest, where there's not a whole lot of surface water available for them to conduct their, their normal lives. Um, though that doesn't necessarily pertain to the meaning and the application of the term appurtenant, um, you say that it's, it's fairly important that the court is recognizing this and, and acknowledging that there's a, just a, a practical reality where there's a a dire water shortage in a lot of these communities. What uh, what is the importance of the language there and in this opinion and within sort of the doctrine that's now laid out? Sure, and and th- you know this is a, a very important point. I'm glad you raised it. And this the the court doesn't make this point so much in terms of discussing the reserved rights doctrine because it it, it doesn't go to either the purpose point or the appurtenance point. But you know af- after discussing those factors, the court goes on to say, look. You know, as a practical reality, there are a lot of places in the West where groundwater is either the primary source of water or, in some places, really the only source of water. And, and as I said before, that's becoming increasingly true in some areas, particularly during periods of drought. And so, uh, clearly, one of the things in the back of the court's mind, and, and the court is pretty explicit about this, is if you were to reach the other result and say, no, the reserve rights doctrine doesn't extend to groundwater um, in certain areas and in in certain periods of time, it would really take a lot of the force out of the reserved rights doctrine. And at the end of the day, the doctrine is is about what Congress impliedly intended in taking property out of the public domain and establishing a, 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 you know, park or an Indian reservation or what have you. And the court says, look, there's no reason to think that if Congress had been thinking about this issue and were to realize that um, groundwater is such an important source uh, of, of water in, in certain areas, there's no reason to think that Congress wouldn't want uh, to protect the federal property's ability to, to draw on groundwater as necessary. Those are obviously the, the two main points battled over the, the elements of that the doctrine. Um, but there's some, some fallback arguments that were, were raised by the appellants. They were disposed of by the, the panel. What were those arguments and, and how did the panel deal with them? So there were a couple uh, Arguments, and I think you know, just stepping back here, the the attorneys representing the attorneys on both sides were were very good, and I took a look at the briefs, and the, and the briefs were um, were very well done. And in particular, the attorneys representing the water district, I think, saw the writing on the wall and recognized that it was it was very likely that the court was going to say that the reserved rights doctrine extended to to groundwater. Um, I don't think anybody was really surprised by that outcome. Um, and so I think a lot that a lot of their time and energy was was focused on, you know, what other grounds do we have for for reversing the trial court's decision, and and, and how can we position ourselves advantageously going forward in in the lawsuit. So so uh, the the main fallback argument the um, water agencies made was, look, even if reserved rights um, can exist in in groundwater, this particular tribe shouldn't get any such rights for a couple reasons. One is that, look, there's no evidence that the tribe isn't getting the quantity of groundwater that it needs. And, you know, this this situation isn't uncommon in water law. The, the tribe and the water agencies, you know, are, are partners, and, and the water agency actually is the supplier of water to the tribe. Um, and so, it, you know, these two parties know each other well, and although they're adversaries in litigation, they have a history going back, and, and the water agency said, look, we the, we work with the tribe. They're getting plenty of water. There's no reason to think they need this doctrine to be recognized to, to secure um, a, an adequate supply of water. Um, and the Ninth Circuit said, essentially, well, that may be true, but it's, it's just not relevant to the question of whether they have a right in the 
in the groundwater to begin with. Um, the second main fallback argument that the, um, that the water agencies made, and this one I think is a little bit more interesting, depends on the nature of groundwater law in, in California. And um, groundwater law varies quite a bit throughout, throughout the United States and even throughout the West, even within prior appropriation states. And historically, California has been sort of a, a bit of an outlier in terms of um, groundwater. It had, had very few restrictions on groundwater use, and it was sort of a wild, wild west in terms of, of groundwater. And that's starting to change. There's been some significant legislation enacted over the past few years that established more of a regulatory scheme. But um, California's doctrine is, is um, in, in groundwater is called correlative rights. And what it means essentially is if you're a property owner um, and there's an aquifer under your land and say there are, you know, three or four other property owners um, with, with the aquifer, aquifer also um, lies underneath their land, you have to share the aquifer with them in a reasonable way um, and, and sustainable way so that um, you can each, you know, have, have water to serve your purposes and you're not going to be, um, uh, you know, using all of the water in the aquifer and drying it all up and, now, in practice, that, that often isn't enforced, but that's the way the doctrine exists. And so the water agency's argument here was, look, we have this correlative rights doctrine. Um, under, you know, under correlative rights doctrine, you look at what is a, what does a water user need, and there's just no indication that, that the tribe needs this groundwater to, to serve their purpose. And so under the correlative rights doctrine, they're, they're not entitled to it. Um, and the, the Ninth Circuit also brushed that aside. Um, in, in a way that, and, and we can discuss this, I think might create a little bit of co confusion going forward. Um, it said, look, whatever state law says, um, you know, reserved rights is, is a matter of federal law, and under the Supremacy Clause, you know, federal law um, preempts any conflicting state law, and so it's just not relevant what, what the Correlative Rights Doctrine says. We're still going to hold that the tribe has a right to, um, you know, to, to use groundwater for the, for the purposes for which the reservation was established. Yeah. yeah. In your column, you, you mentioned how the court's treatment of that, that second fallback argument, the correlative rights argument, could leave some ambiguity and could give rise to some future litigation over the question. Why, why do you say that? Sure. So um, let me say at the outset, you know, I, I think the Ninth Circuit did a, did a great job with this opinion overall. Judge Tallman wrote it, and it's um, it's concise, it's well-reasoned, it's persuasive, so I, I think it's a very good opinion. The one area where I think it might inadvertently create some ambiguity is, it, is in its discussion of the relationship between the reserved rights doctrine and state water law. So the reason there's a little bit of confusion here, um, remember we were talking about earlier the way the reserved rights doctrine works is there's a priority date that attaches when Congress removes the land at issue from the public domain and establishes a park or reservation or what have you. And um, in doing so, it impliedly creates a water right that is superior to subsequent water rights under state law, but importantly, isn't superior to earlier water rights under state law. So the reserved rights doctrine kind of fits neatly, in the context of surface water at least, fits neatly within state prior appropriation law in that it doesn't create an absolute priority for federal rights over state water rights, which would raise some serious constitutional questions, but rather creates a water right that is superior to, and if you want to say preempts, although it's not really preemption, it's just superior to later water rights under state law, but not superior to earlier water rights under state law. So there's an interesting question as to how the reserved rights doctrine applies in the context of groundwater. And the reason it's interesting is that most states, including California, don't recognize prior appropriation in the groundwater context. So it's not, it's not like in the context of surface water where you have a list of users by priority date and the more senior rights have preference over junior rights. State groundwater law is different state by state, but in California, as, as I mentioned earlier, they, we recognize something called the correlative rights doctrine where you know, you're a property owner and, and there's an underlying aquifer, you have a right to use some of that water um, in, in collaboration or in cooperation with your neighbors, given your needs and their needs and how much water can be harvested sustainably from the underlying aquifer. So, and, and the priority date really isn't relevant under, under state groundwater law. So, 
so I think going forward, when, once we have this doctrine of reserved rights in groundwater, there's going to be a question of, well, okay, so you have a reserved right in groundwater. What is it entitled you to? What, what type of water right is it? How, how much water can you use? How do you decide how much water can you use? Um, and I, I'm a, a bit concerned that some of the language in the opinion might suggest that it just preempts, uh, you know, that a federal reserve right in groundwater is just superior to um, neighboring, you know, property owner state groundwater rights. I, I don't think that's correct. Um, so it, I think the way it, it makes most sense to view the doctrine is that you have a, as a federal property, you have a property right in groundwater, and, and that property right entitles you to the same kind of, of treatment under state water law that, that neighboring property owners get. And there's nothing in the Ninth Circuit's opinion that forecloses that understanding. I mean, this issue, that issue wasn't really presented by this case. Um, and so I don't think it's going to be hopefully a major problem going forward, but there is some language in the opinion that, that maybe could be misread to, um, to have resolved that question, and, and that could create a bit of confusion going forward, but hopefully you know, litigants will recognize um, what was at issue in this case and what wasn't, and, and we'll read that language appropriately. Yeah, do you, do you think it's sort of one of those instances where a court will, will go as far as it, it needs to to determine the questions before it and, and not much further? And obviously, those questions that you say that could come up, they're, they're fairly tricky, so perhaps the court didn't necessarily need to wait in them, didn't want to wade into them if they didn't, didn't need to here? I think that's right. And, and, and again, the court didn't need to resolve that question here. The question is just, are there reserved rights in groundwater? And the answer is yes, and, and nobody's going to be too worked up about that answer. And so, um, in part because of the phased nature of this litigation, these trickier questions about how you quantify the right and what what type of right is it, what type of water quality are you entitled to, all those questions were reserved for future phases. And so the, the court didn't have to wade into that here. And so I would expect that either in a future phase of this case or, or possibly another litigation, um, those issues will arise and, and courts can confront them at that point. Yeah. I mean, turning to those questions for a second, if, uh, if those are the ones that are they're opposed now, if we settled that there is a reserved right in groundwater, but we're, we're not sure yet exactly what that entitles the, the right holder to, um, you said those could be the, the next questions coming up. I guess how, how would courts go about defining the contours of uh, exactly what Right holders would be entitled to is a reasonable use kind of thing, like he say, but would be the what the correlative doctrine might suggest something along those lines. I think that's right, and this is going to be a, a very difficult question. You know, in in some sense, um, this this issue was the easiest part of the case. It's a, it was a purely legal question, and the court's analysis, as I said, was was pretty spot on for the most part. Um, but now you're going to have to deal with these messy questions on the ground. Of, okay, you have a you have a reserve right in groundwater. What does that mean exactly in, in, in terms of practical reality? So I, I would expect that, um, you know, it's going to be a pretty fact-intensive inquiry. Um, you know, the, the, the guiding principle, as we talked about earlier, is, is Congress intended to reserve a right um, sufficient to achieve the purposes of the reservation. Um, but in, in areas like the Coachella Valley, where, where water is scarce, um, it's, it's hard to say exactly what that means. I mean, you could conceivably have incredibly water-intensive farming on, on this land. Um, does it mean that Congress envisioned for, for the tribe to be able to do that? Um, probably not. Uh, I would imagine you have to look at things like, you know, what are the common um, economic uses of water in the region? What's, what's reasonable to expect the, the um, tribe to use the water for in, in light of um, competing uh, uses of water and, and other uh, property owners' interests in the area, you know, in light of common farming practices, things like that. Um, and so it, it'll really be a pretty fact-dependent question. Um, and then, as, as we said, there's going to be the separate question of um, if you're using groundwater, um, do you just slide right in, in a sense, to, to the state correlative right doctrine and, and um, have to take into account competing uses from other property owners who are overlying the same groundwater basin as you. I think, I think that'll be an interesting question going forward as well. So there's, there will be a lot to um, get resolved, and we'll see whether that happens um, in a future phase of this case or in other cases. Um, I think that the one prediction I'm fairly confident making is that as time goes on, these, these issues are only going to increase in importance and not decrease. You know, throughout the Colorado River Basin in particular, your, your listeners might be aware there are lots of 
discussions going on about how to deal with the fact that the, the Colorado River is over-appropriated and, and can't um, sustain all of the competing demands on it right now. And there are negotiations between California and Arizona and um, various uh, other states and, and users in those states. And um, groundwater certainly fits into that picture in, in some ways. And um, I, I think we can expect there to be more action in this area in, in future years. Yeah, notwithstanding the uh, ecological havoc that climate change is wreaking, it certainly is creating a, a demand for water law. Attorneys, those sound like very dense questions, so I'm sure those attorneys will be earning their money trying to unpack them. For now, we can go ahead and leave it there. Uh, Josh Potashnik, thanks for joining me to chat about this case. It's always interesting to see the law uh, develop before your eyes. Thanks again. My pleasure, Brian. Great to, great to be with you. more time, that was Mr. Josh Potashnik, associate with Munger, Tolls, and Olson, speaking about the Agua Caliente Band of Cahila Indians versus Coachella Valley Water District case of the Ninth Circuit. We'll move now to my discussion with Mr. Jeffrey Aaron, the Riverside Office of the Federal Public Defender. I'm very pleased to be joined now by Mr. Jeffrey Aaron, directing attorney at the Office of the Federal Public Defender out in Riverside. Mr. Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So you, you authored a column in our perspective section of the Daily Journal newspaper regarding the case we talk about now an important Supreme Court ruling from last week, case of Peña Rodriguez versus Colorado. Significant for a few reasons, probably chiefly among them, there is now a new exception created in a decades-long federal rule of evidence. And that exception protects criminal defendants where their guilty verdicts are, to some extent, uh, influenced by racial animus. And we'll get into just how that exception works, how that protection works, its contours. Um, but first, let's go ahead and start the, at the beginning here. This case obviously arises from the state of Colorado. What, uh, what was the charge brought there? What was the verdict? And, and why, after the verdict, did uh, the defense counsel bring a, a motion for a new trial based on some, uh, I understand, some, some chatter that had occurred during jury, jury deliberations? Well, what happened is that Peña Rodriguez was tried in 2007 for a series of sexual offenses against two sisters. The jury convicted him of two, and they hung on the third. Uh, during the voir dire, they, was asked, they were asked, uh, can you be impartial, typical questions like that, and there was nothing remarkable said. Then, after he discharged the jury, the judge told the jurors, you can talk with the lawyers, defendant, any, anyone else that you want to talk to. Eventually, two jurors came forward, and they spoke to the defense counsel. And according to them, there was a third juror, H.C., who during uh, the deliberations had made a number of statements which were uh, pretty uh, inflammatory and expressed a, a pretty overt anti-Hispanic bias towards the defendant and his counsel. The uh, uh, statements towards the counsel aren't really reported, but the statements about the defendant uh, really go to the heart of the matter because they talk about uh, Hispanic men in, in relation to, to women and their attitude towards women. Justice Kennedy, in his opinion, gets into some of the examples, as you say, they're um, fairly egregious. Could you uh, provide me with an example of something that was said? Sure. Uh, the the juror is called H.C. in the opinion, said Mexican men had bravado. Um, that makes them think that they can do whatever they want with women. He said that he thought the defendant was guilty because he's Mexican and makes Mexican men take whatever they want. He said that uh, nine out of 10 Mexican men were uh, overtly aggressive towards women. And he said that uh, he referred to a witness who had said the witness had said that he was a legal resident of the United States. And he referred to him as an illegal alien. OK, now the defense moves for new trial, but that motion is denied. It's denied based on in the rule of evidence, the, the no impeachment rule. Colorado has a, a state parallel to the federal rule, which was enacted or uh, created in, in 1975. Can you tell me about the, the no impeachment rule, what it prescribes and what the rationale behind the rule is? Well, there's various forms of it, but the no impeachment rule says you can't bring in evidence from other jurors or things like that to show the jury deliberations. So in other words, you can't impeach the jury deliberations. And the way that the reason they do that is so that the jurors can have a free and open discussion. Uh, one and two, you don't have people going in and challenging every single verdict and relitigating this time litigating the deliberations as well. And 
the federal rules have a, a no impeachment rule with some exceptions, and Colorado also has a no impeachment rule. Okay. Yeah, I believe in the original rule, the federal version at least, there were three exceptions. Would you mind walking me through through those? Yes. There's an exception for uh, extraneous evidence, and a lot of times you classically see, you see this when jurors uh, refer to a Bible or uh, a juror says, hey, I drove by the scene of the murder last night, and you could see everything, uh, something like that, when they're talking about extraneous evidence that's not presented in court and that relied upon. Or they're subjected to outside influences, like a, a bailiff uh, or a sheriff in, in, you know, who, who guards the jury, uh, pressures them, or a family member or an employer pressures them to vote a certain way, or they mistakenly enter the wrong verdict. And of those, obviously, the wrong verdict is the, the least likely to occur. Sure. Okay, so in those three instances, then, uh, based on, on those problems, a, a jury's verdict could be attacked after it's rendered. Um, I understand that since then, the beginning of that rule, 1975, and, and today there have been only two two cases where the Supreme Court has taken a look at the rule and, and analyzed whether or not in different situations there might be other exceptions where impeachment should be allowed. Uh, and in both times, those exceptions were proposed, but then not created. Could you tell me a little bit about those two cases? Well, that's exactly right. There was a, a case called Tanner, and in Tanner, the uh, defendant wanted to uh, use uh, to impeach the verdict because there was evidence that some of the jurors were on drugs or alcohol. And there was a later case, uh, a Warger, W-A-R-G-E-R, in which there was bias against the defendant, and because the defendant I'm sorry, it was a civil case. It wasn't a criminal case in, in Warger. In that case, the uh, uh, juror having bias had a daughter who had had an accident, and it was a car accident case, and the defendant had also had an accident. So that person uh, made statements indicating that they were biased in favor of uh, the person who had had the accident, the defendant. But in both of those instances, the Supreme Court said, you know, we're not going to revisit verdicts in instances like like those where there's these sort of idiosyncratic biases that come up. Right. Even though you might think that it's 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 one thing to say, well, I'm biased in favor of people uh, who've had car accidents because I had a family member who had a car accident. That seems pretty remote, whereas being under the drugs or out being under drugs or alcohol seems like something that would kind of go to the heart of jury deliberations. But nonetheless, even there in the Tanner case, the Supreme Court said we are, are not going to permit impeachment of the verdicts. Here, there was, for the first time in, in 42 years, there was an exception. That obviously shows that the Supreme Court has not been wont to, to go ahead and create new exceptions to this rule until last week, when in the uh, opinion for the majority, Justice Kennedy, along with Justices Breyer, Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and uh, Kagan creates this new exception in instances of racial animus. Um, could you tell me why, in his view, racial animus determining a verdict to some extent does merit a new exception to this longstanding rule? I think it's because of the unique role that uh, racial animus has played in American history and the American legal system. What the uh, uh, majority, through Ju uh, Justice Kennedy, said is that the prior cases, Tanner and Warger, involved uh, uh, individual or isolated groups of jurors, whereas racial bias, in Kennedy's words, is, quote, a familiar and recurring evil, uh, end quote, and it risks, quote, systemic injury, end quote, to our legal system. Those are pretty strong words, and I think that it's because of the unique uh, character and role of racial bias in, in American history and the legal system that they wanted to make an exception for that. They also pointed out that Making an exception for it kind of helps to preserve faith in in the uh, uh, jury in jury verdicts in the legal system. So I, I think they're they're pretty conscious of the uh, political fallout or the social fallout from allowing racial bias to uh, exist in in jury verdicts. Yeah, they definitely did stress the fact that ruling in the alternative here 
could weaken the public's faith in the jury deliberation process. Because maybe I could just paint a picture if this case comes out differently then it's essentially saying a juror or a number of jurors could say, well, yeah, this person's just based on their race means that they are more predisposed to commit a crime or they probably committed this crime and say those jurors are particularly persuasive. Um, even in, in that instance, if the court had come the other way, there wouldn't be any recourse for the defendant, right? Yeah, and it, it's interesting how the dissent viewed it uh, so differently. Um, the The exception that the court made was uh, had some pretty stringent requirements. Uh, they, uh, under Justice Kennedy's decision, you have to have a clear statement of racial bias. That's what the, the actual language, a clear statement. Uh, and it has to be one of overt bias. And this is overt bias. It's not implied bias or anything like that. It's overt bias. He's saying, I believe that Hispanics, nine out of 10 of them um, are, are guilty and that sort of thing. That's overt bias. So you needed to have this clear statement of over-bias that counts a serious doubt on the fairness of the deliberations and the verdicts. And that's a pretty high standard to meet. So it wouldn't be like a just a stray comment here or there. Uh, it would be something more significant? Yeah, I would think so, yes. Okay, now maybe one pushback against the majority's reasoning could be that well, attorneys have an opportunity before trial at voir dire to screen out folks that have bias that might be improper. And so, you know, if they haven't been able to do so if they missed some juror that had a particular bias. Well, um, you know, they, they had their chance, but I, I believe the, the majority notes here that racial bias can be a bit difficult to, to suss out and identify and then screen out during voir dire. Um, why is that the case in your experience? Have you found that to be true in practice? Oh, that's absolutely true in practice. I've had very, very few cases, and I've done a lot of state cases uh, and federal cases, I've had very, very few cases where someone was willing to admit that I have a problem with someone of a different race or ethnicity. Um, the social stigma, as Justice Kennedy wrote, is is very real and it's very evident to people who do um, uh, criminal cases. And the other problem is that oftentimes you don't really get much in the way of voir dire. Although the Ninth Circuit Jury Trial Improvement Committee has said a best practice is to allow voir dire, not all judges do. And a lot of times the voir dire they allow is very limited. And sometimes you can't even ask the type of questions that you would need to ask. So it, it is a big problem. Okay, now let's turn to the dissent here. It's Justice Alito's opinion, joined by Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Thomas. At the outset, Justice Alito deems the majority's opinion startling. What, uh, what in his opinion is so startling about this ruling? Well, one of the things that Justice Alito said is that there's no, no reason in the Sixth Amendment why we should give partiality to a statement of racial bias. Um, why should we allow a verdict to be impeached because of racial bias and not some other types of partiality or bias? And there definitely is, uh, logically, some force behind what he says. And in general, I think he thought it was a startling development because there is no, there's nothing in the Sixth Amendment per se that says uh, you can't have statements of racial bias. It's conceivable that someone could say, I don't like uh, Muslims or I don't like blacks, but they could be fair and impartial. Now, we, knowing what we know of human nature, that seems pretty, pretty difficult to imagine, but I, you know, it is possible. And on the face of it, the Sixth Amendment that says you have a right to counsel and, and a fair and public trial doesn't necessarily say you um, have a right to have um, jurors who, you know, share all of your opinions. In his opinion, Justice Toledo also notes that the court should have some interest in preserving the, the sanctity or the, the confidentiality of communications between jurors in much the same way that courts protect communications between, say, doctors or patients or clergymen and penitents. Um, but you note in your column that this is not necessarily an apples-to-apples -apples type comparison. Why, why not? Although I thought the dissent had a lot of good points, I, I didn't really think that that was a, a, a really a, a strong objection. Um, we say uh, we are not going to allow um, parties to attorney-client or clergyman, penitent, or spouses to talk about the privileges. Sometimes both hold the privilege, sometimes only one holds the privilege. But it's clear that the law has said we're going to give special protection to those relationships. 
And I think that's clear why, you know, with spouses, obviously you can't have a marriage unless you can be, unless you can trust your spouse to keep confidential what you say to her or she says to you or uh, vice versa. Uh, same with attorney and client. You can't have an attorney client relationship. And clearly there's a religious doctrine like uh, the Catholic priest and the penitent where uh, the confessional is sacrosanct and, and is, is highly confidential. So there's a lot of reasons, societal reasons why we would want to keep that type of confidentiality. Also, whether or not someone says to a spouse or to uh, their attorney or to a, a clergy uh, that they have bias against uh, another race or religion or ethnicity, um, that's not necessarily uh, something that society really has a strong interest in purging. In fact, you might say society has more of an interest in people saying, being honest and frank with a clergyman, for example, and saying, I, for whatever reason, I have a problem with uh, Muslims or Hispanics or with women, and uh, help me with that. So there's a, maybe even a societal reason to preserve it, which doesn't have anything to do with the actual bias. Whereas when we're talking about the jury room, it's a much different thing. We would say we don't want the taint of racial prejudice or ethnic bias in the jury room at all. Moreover, in the jury room, you're making factual determinations that would uh, uh, impact someone's life. In attorney, client, clergyman, penitent, or spousal relationship, you might not be making those same type of uh, determinations. They may only be affecting the parties involved, not society as large, at large. Um, now, you pointed out this, this note by Justice Alito a, a moment ago where he seems perplexed as to why one type of bias uh, racial bias might be treated differently than other types of bias, um, and, and and the racial the instance of racial bias in defendant would be given some recourse where there's a circumstance where there's other types of bias and a defendant would would not. He illustrates this um, with a, a somewhat detailed picture that he paints of two two convicts that are convicted by juries that have different types of, of biases. Could you go ahead and walk me through this illustration that he that he paints and um, why he thinks it makes the this rule improper? He has an interesting hypothetical. He says, let's say there's two cellmates who are serving lengthy prison terms for the same offense. Uh, in the first, for the first cellmate, a juror at his trial uh, expresses racial animosity. And in the second, a juror expresses animosity towards the defendant because he's got the jersey of a football team that the juror doesn't like. Uh, Alito says, because of this case, the first would obtain a reversal because racial bias is damaging to our society. The second doesn't because major sports rivalries are not a major societal issue. Uh, what's interesting about this to me is you might say, well, it might be a lot more common and a lot more damaging that people have racial animosity. They might be much more likely to convict someone wrongly, whereas it may, it's less often that someone is really going to hate a person because they're wearing uh, the jersey or the insignia of a, of a team that uh, the other juror hates, and even less likely that because of that they would vote to find them guilty. I would sort of take it that the, the majority's response to Alito's concern to some extent would be, you know, it's for the reasons that you stated, there's some logically satisfactory reasons to draw the line where it's, it's being drawn here to allow exceptions in these instances where it's a case where the, there's some historical invidious residue involved and then it's not a lot of the exception where there's less invidious bias. But And, uh, and, and also, and also I, I think that remember what they said in the majority opinion about the social stigma to admitting to racial bias um, in voir dire. Uh, I could imagine in voir dire, you might admit to bias because of, uh, against someone because they're wearing the jersey of a football team you dislike, and the jury might find that really entertaining. So far from having a social stigma, they might say, well, we really like a guy who's a Laker fan, although he's taking it a little too far. Uh, the majority is saying, okay, we can we can draw the line here. And interestingly, in your column, I think you, you look at Alito's opinion as sort of a roadmap forward and saying exceptions could be created um, in in other instances. You, as you say, there's some logical persuasion involved in Alito's point that, well, why um, exceptions if a verdict isn't properly based on this bias and, and not when it's based on some other less invidious bias? What uh, What could those other exceptions look like? Well, one of the things that Alito does is he says – uh, 
that this kind of disparate treatment, getting back to the hypothetical about uh, bias against the football team as opposed to the racial bias, uh, he says this type of disparate treatment, one bias is more important than the other, isn't really supportable under the Sixth Amendment. So if we allow testimony about one kind of juror bias, why should any other type of partiality be treated the same way? So that I thought was very, very interesting. I think that clearly there's a reason why we might not treat bias against a football team uh, the same way as racial bias, and the majority would say because of its historical and um, uh, uh, legal significance, racial bias stands alone. But I'm not sure that's quite true, because if you look at the Equal Protection Clause, when it talks about suspect categories, it includes uh, race, but it also includes religion, national origin, things like that. And I do think that the majority might have a problem there if it were to say that it's okay to impeach a verdict under the Sixth Amendment because of race, but not because of religion. Um, and I also included sexual orientation as well, because it seems to me that there's no real societal, no legitimate societal interest in saying, let's allow people to impeach verdicts when there's grounds of racial bias, but let's not let them do it if there's grounds of religious or gender bias, because the damage to society and the loss of confidence in the verdicts is going to be just as great if jurors think, if, if citizens think that, oh, people are convicted because they're Muslim or Jewish or Hindu, or people are convicted because they're gay or trans or, 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 or heterosexual. Behind all those considerations, though, I suppose the concern for judicial efficiency lurks. So uh, if there are more and more instances where a jury verdict is uh, vulnerable to impeachment or, say, there becomes more instances where jurors are less likely to want to serve on, on juries because they might not feel free to uh, share opinions that are socially controversial, um, what uh, what do you make of the worth and the value of, of those concerns weighed against the ones that, that you've put forth? I kind of doubt that um, there's going to be that many challenges on these grounds. Um, I, I've had a lot of jurors, and I've talked to a lot of jurors, and I think that jurors are actually kind of careful uh, about what they're saying because they, they don't want to offend other people. Now, if you go into a jury room and you start making comments about national origin or race or religion or gender, how do you know that the juror that you're talking to doesn't have a husband who's a Buddhist or doesn't have a, um, uh, doesn't have a brother-in-law who's black or who's gay? And I, I think that people are actually uh, pretty good at avoiding comments like that. Uh, what they feel in their hearts, I mean, that, that's uh, another question entirely. But I don't think that there's really that many instances in, in which it happens. Certainly not so many that there would be massive numbers of reversals and jurors would say, well, why bother to go to jury service if it's only going to be, you know, reversed? Okay. I suppose with that in mind that there's some, some logical persuasion to the idea of this exception being applied in different contexts, do you think that the reasoning given by the majority and the language used by Justice Alito could provide a path forward in subsequent uh, litigation where other exceptions are created? I, I, I do. I think those exceptions would be limited because of the language of the majority, that it has to be uh, a clear statement of bias that uh, casts serious doubt on the fairness of the deliberations and verdict. I don't think that saying, I, I don't like the football team that he's wearing, is a clear statement of bias that's going to cast serious doubt on the deliberations and verdict. So if you take that language and you take out racial bias and put in other types of bias, could it be uh, that uh, there's a clear statement of religious bias that casts serious doubt on the fairness of the deliberations and verdicts? I think so. Uh, so I think that is going to be pretty much limited to what the kinds of things that the uh, court has said get uh, strict scrutiny or intermediate scrutiny in equal protection analysis, things like race, religion, national origin, or gender. Okay, so now this case is kicked back down to the Colorado court, which needs to examine the motion for a new trial in context of, of this new rule enunciated. For for now, what are some of the, the most important things to have in mind if you're a, a practicing attorney in California, either I'd say the Wadir stage or a motion for a new trial stage? Well, I would think that the most important thing that you can do um, as a uh, lawyer in Wadir is, is – um, Obviously, find out if the jurors have this type of bias. Um, 
how you ask those questions um, and how you frame them is 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 part of a lawyer's skill. And and um, it's it's hard to say. It's hard to come up with a specific program not seeing the specific jurors. Um, but I think that the takeaway is that given that both Justice Kennedy and Justice Alito talk about the importance of voir dire, that it's more important than ever to ask for voir dire in the trial court. Um, and I think in terms of post-trial, it's important to make sure that the jurors know that they can contact uh, the defense uh, about those issues. Well, I think we'll go ahead and leave it there um, for now, Mr. Jeffrey Aaron. Riverside Federal Public Defender. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. And with that, our program for March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, is complete. I'd like to thank both of my guests one more time, Mr. Josh Potashnik and Jeffrey Aaron. I'd like to thank you as well for tuning in. It's much appreciated. Don't forget, just one short true false test separates you from an hour of CLE credit or having tuned into the program. One more time, I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.